Learning Curve listeners, this is Kara Kandel here with my favorite co-host of all time, the Gerard Robinson. And Gerard, I wanted to open today with a little riddle for you. Something that I do when I'm making my kids lunches every morning is I put a riddle in their Mm -hmm. lunchbox. Okay. All right. Wow. 12, almost 13-year-old is not having it on the riddles, but my younger boys love it. So every morning, come on. They're, they're hard to find after a while because I'm not smart enough to actually make riddles up. But here's one of my favorites. I'm going to test your riddle savvy here, my friend. Who is the king or queen of the classroom? Who is the king or queen of the classroom, the queen? Come on, put on your, put on your five-year-old thinking cap. Is that your answer, the queen? Yes. Gerard Robinson. It's the ruler, of course. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's your comic That's relief. That's a good one. It's your comic relief for the day. That is a good one. And I thought it was also appropriate on this day when Great Britain is mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth. I am actually staring out a window right now, and there is an enormous flag with Queen Elizabeth's likeness on it. And so... We might have thwarted that monarchy here in the U.S., but people around the globe are affected in many different ways by this great transition in that commonwealth. It's a commonwealth, right, of different countries in Great Britain's history. It's a transition in global history. I think that, I don't know, maybe we need to have a, an historian on the show to tell us about what kind of impact the Queen's passing has. But at any rate, I thought both the riddle and in the moment of the day <laughs> was very appropriate. How are you doing, Gerard? I'm doing well. I'm laughing because I gave the answer as a man married with three daughters, figuring if I say king, I'm going to be in trouble. So I'm going to just take the safe answer and say queen. You are well conditioned. You are well conditioned, my friend. Those (laughs) women, they're keeping you in line. I love that. I enjoy it. It's fantastic. And the only Queen Elizabeth story I have dates back to the summer of 1998 when I traveled to England with maybe 25 people from the University of Virginia's School of Education at that time, the Curry School. And I was a grad student at the time. And a professor and I delivered a paper there. Well, several of us actually decided to go to London, look at Buckingham Palace and others. As we were there, she actually had a motorcade pass by. So I got a picture of the motorcade passing by. I can't see much of her, but that is the closest that I got to English royalty. Did you give a royal wave? As the No, nope, I was too busy trying to take the picture looking like a tourist. Yeah. Well, well I have news for you. You were a tourist, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, Gerard, I also had teacher riddles on the mind because my story of the week this week And actually, it's like the story of my life lately. You know that I've spent a lot of my career in the realm of teacher education, once teaching at a school Mm -hmm. of education. And that's what this week's story is about. So I'm going to get a little salty here. I'm not going to lie. So just prepare yourself. This This is an opinion piece by a friend of the show and somebody we've had on the show, I think a really smart person and researcher. She's, she's wonderful. Lindsay Burke, and she's writing for Heritage. The title is, It's Time for States to Break Up with Education Colleges. Now, Dr. Burke summarizes right at the beginning the three reasons that she's making this argument that the states should break up with education colleges. And I've stated my respect for her and everything, but I'm going to say I don't agree with all of this argument. <laughs> so bullet one of the argument is that today too many 
we'll call them traditional schools of education, are indoctrinating aspiring teachers in CRT while doing little to boost actual effectiveness in the classroom. Number two, she says that research demonstrates that there is little, if any, connection between teacher certification and student academic achievement. And number three, schools and school systems should be fostering alternative teacher certification routes and allowing for full reciprocity of teacher licensure. Now, I'll get into the stuff that I agree with, but first let me say on bullet one, boy, oh boy. I mean, the culture wars just gone awry in my opinion. I bet, I don't know, Jared, maybe you will tell me if you have a different opinion or if you just don't care, but to support this idea that SCDs promote CRT or indoctrinate students in CRT, she talks about a study that she did with another friend of the show, Rick Hess, and she notes that upwards of 40% of professors state race as a research interest, this is professors in colleges of education, and that many say they pursue their research through CRT. I'm not arguing with that. What I'm arguing with is that this means that they are indoctrinating their students. It could be that they're talking about it. I certainly, I'm, I'm not going to argue with the fact that, yeah, many institutions of higher learning lean left. I also worked with some very conservative people when I was teaching a school of education. We weren't always the most popular people around, those of us who studied school choice, but we were there and we were present, right? And there were professors that quote unquote indoctrinated. I wouldn't even call it that. They talked about a different point of view. So I think that that is spurious. But more than that, Gerard, I'm bothered by this constant idea that wonks need to weigh in on this. If parents are upset with how their teachers are teaching math, parents should let that be known. I don't know that we wonks need to be the ones who are saying that it's wrong or it's good or it's bad. Some parents might be perfectly happy with a teacher that provides a math story problem through the lens of, say, social justice. Other parents will be upset with it, and that will go for anything a teacher does. In some ways, teachers, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. But the bigger problem here for me is that Schools of education have huge problems and traditional routes to teacher certification have huge problems that have absolutely nothing to do, in my opinion, with the idea that some professors might be talking about CRT or telling students that CRT is a good thing in their classrooms, right? It's their prerogative, quite frankly. It's academic freedom, I think is what it's called. But here are just a few examples, in my opinion. Now, some of this align with what Dr. Burke says later in her article. I think, first of all, let's talk about the fact that so many schools of education aren't really requiring or teaching students content area knowledge. That is, if you want to be a math teacher, you're not necessarily required in many places to have a degree in math. You're required to maybe go to a teacher training program that may or may not teach you a little bit of math. Or hopefully you're being taught the math that you need if you're going to be a high school teacher. But what happens if you don't have other areas of foundational math or the ways of thinking about math? So let's focus on content knowledge instead of just what, yes, many schools of education on are heavy on it's pedagogy, right? So pedagogy is not a bad thing. I think that that's where a lot of this gets controversial with CRT, et cetera. But we need to think about developing expertise, like a generalist, for example, somebody, a preschool teacher or an elementary teacher, they should probably be more focused on child development, the science of the brain. We have all this emerging research on brain science. And for my money, at least in my experience as a faculty member, that wasn't really covered too much in the courses that we gave to our students. And speaking of science, 
I think a huge argument that we should have with universities and colleges in traditional teacher training programs is so many of them are not teaching the science of reading. And what I mean by that is research that states, yes, there is a way to teach reading and it involves teaching phonics and this whole language approach that is still being promoted as a method of teaching in so many places is actually resulting in kids not being able to read. So this is something that we know that's actually based in the brain science, in data and evidence, and we should be doing the same thing for the teaching of any core subject like math, for example. Now, what other things should we be thinking about with traditional colleges of education? How about making your programs affordable? Making sure that students don't have to take out student loans just to have access to your programs. Don't just teach about classroom management. Why don't we make the candidates do it? Many teacher preparation programs only put people in schools for like a semester and maybe a couple days a week a semester and they're observing a mentor teacher. Few teachers get much practical teaching experience if they're in a traditional root program and they're just thrown into a classroom with kids and then we wonder why they fail. In my experiences, schools of education, especially if you're talking about big teacher prep programs, don't do a great job of directing teachers to communities where there are shortages, fields where there are shortages, communities and fields where people are needed the most. And then the other thing they don't do is support teachers once they've been on the job in that first year and that second year. What are the ties that keep them getting advice from professors in traditional programs, evaluating them, helping them become better? So much of that gets pushed down to districts or gets pushed down to schools that don't have always the capacity. They could use support from teacher prep programs in doing that. So this is where I think that Dr. Burke gets it right because she suggests that we need a lot more alternative routes to certification. And we also need to think about certification because the data tell us that certification itself does not equal good teaching. In fact, we have many high performing teachers who for whatever reason are in schools without having passed a certification exam and based on student outcomes and based on evaluations of their teaching, some of these folks are still doing incredibly well. So there are alternative certification programs out there, Gerard, that I think we need to be talking about, promoting and building upon instead of getting stuck in the culture wars. Grow your own programs, which we're seeing an emergence of in many states. They are now federally registered apprenticeships. These are where districts can partner with diverse educator preparation providers. It could be a university, a traditional program, or it could be another proven entity that can develop teachers. And you can, in a district, you can tap somebody as early as high school and say, I think you might have potential to be a teacher. How would you feel about taking a couple of courses that we'll pay for? And by the way, if you persist and you continue and you're good, your bachelor's degree will be paid for. We just need you to agree to teach for us for some period of time. Other programs that tap promising candidates on the shoulder are programs that take, for example, paraprofessionals, people that might have never thought they could be a teacher, but show potential in a classroom and they can get on the job training and on the job education, some of them taking virtual programs receiving micro-credentials as they work their way toward a degree. And then, of course, I think we need to be talking writ large about loan forgiveness programs, housing. I mean, can I go on, Gerard? We need to make it easier to be a teacher without lowering standards. Get more people into the profession, train them well, support them all the way through. And do I agree that certification isn't the fix and that we need to fix certification, maybe question it altogether? I do, but let's not focus too much 
on the things that schools of education might be doing. And let's focus on what the evidence says they are doing poorly and get new providers into the space. So that is my rant <laughs> for this <laughs> of the learning curve. Gerard, what are your thoughts? Good rant. We're in agreement on a few of the major points. Teacher alternatives to the profession are important, including troops to teachers. And there are places like North Carolina that work pretty closely with the Department of Ed or its Department of Ed to look for people to come into the profession. CRT, as I've said before, I don't have a problem with CRT being a part of a broader conversation about how we articulate phenomena in society and outside of society. Critical race theory isn't my problem. Crazy race theory is. And that's the belief that everybody white must pay for all the sins that have been wrought upon black people or people of color because of slavery and everything else. There were white people who helped with the abolitionist movement. There were white people who helped in the civil rights movement. It goes on from there. I think you can be critical of American society and still love the country and have things to say about it. Crazy race theory I'm concerned about, critical race theory not so much. Indoctrination may be a tough word, but I am sure there are some schools of education who promote this. Before there's critical race theory, some could say pedagogy of the oppressed was the equivalent of critical race theory. And that is something that's been taught in ed schools for a long time. If ed schools have indoctrinated people on certain things, I've been to two. One was anti-privatization. Another was accountability, but not too much. And if there was concern about critical race theory for many years, longer than critical race theory, there's what I would call critical choice theory. I'm talking about choice the same way opponents talk about critical race theory. So indoctrination or pushing a point has been a part of higher ed and ed schools for a very long time. It's good to hear Lindsay and Rick write something out there, put into the public place for ideas. Uh, also speaking of those two, had a chance to participate in AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network Summit last week. So it is part of the debate. And like I said, CRT alone doesn't bother me, but the other CRT does. Well put. Crazy race theory. That's the first time I've heard that. What are you thinking about this week, Gerard? So mine is somewhat similar because it is about teachers and how we bring teachers into the field. So my story is from the city of brotherly love. And speaking of brothers and love, this is about black men teaching at a high school in Philadelphia. And the title of the article is a Philadelphia high school first black men teaching all freshmen core subjects. And this is from Chalkbeat, Philadelphia. So at the Martin Luther King High School in Philadelphia, there are a set of teachers, four African-American men in particular, who are going to teach. And what's interesting about MLK is that last year, the student body was 92% black and 62% male. And it's become the first high school in Philadelphia to have classes where math, English, science, and history are taught by black male teachers. And it's for they highlighted. And what's interesting about their story is that most of them have known each other for more than a decade, either through church or social organizations or through academic institutions. What's also interesting, all four did not begin a career in education. One was an engineer. Another one was a physical therapist. And it's through conversations, volunteer opportunities, working with other educators that they had the aha moment. I think I want to go and become a teacher. Now, some taught before in another setting before they moved over to MLK, so bringing some of it to the classroom. But it was the principal of the school, Keisha Wilkins, who said that I want to make sure that my students have an opportunity to see men 
women who look like them. Now, let's put this in perspective. We've talked about this before, but in the national education teaching ranks, 80% of the teachers in public schools are women, 20% are men, approximately 80% are white. When you're looking at black men in the teaching profession, you're looking at 2% nationwide. And in Philadelphia, which is really actually high, in Philadelphia, roughly 24% of teachers are black but just 4% of the black teachers are men. And so Principal Wilkins said, we've got to do something about that. So between a combination of recruiting, combination of working with programs, so one program that Principal Wilkins singled out as a place that worked well for her and possibly others is a Center for Black Education Development. And it is a program founded and led by Sharif L. McKee, Sharif is someone I've had on another show before. He's a lifelong educator, former principal of a public school, and decided that rather than talk about the idea of trying to get more black men, he created a center to focus on that. And they have a scholarship program. They have a fellowship program. They actually have a national meeting coming forward. So they're in town. And so she worked with them as well as the Black Teacher Pipeline Project. And so the four men say they are looking forward to going into classrooms. Now, as we talk about critical race theory, there are some who could say, well, here's another example of making this about black students needing black teachers. Well, there's at least some evidence to show that it actually makes a difference. So there's actually a 2002 article published in August by a scholar named David Blazer. And the title of his article is, how and why do black teachers benefit students? An experimental analysis of causal mediation. And basically for all those wonks who like causal mediation framework, the author said that he was going to look at a randomized assignment of black versus white teachers in upper elementary schools to see what it would do on black students. Well, according to Blazer, he found an increase in self-efficacy and engagement amongst black students. He found an increase in test scores and a decrease in chronic absenteeism, roughly 60%. What he tried to explain in this, he said that good teaching practices and providing a good mindset is good for all students and white teachers and black teachers can do this together. However, all things being held equal, when you look at the measure of what black teachers can offer black students, there is an indication that such things as role modeling are important to long-term effects, but also how students see themselves. So that's one factor. But that's not the newest study. I mean, there's one from 2018 put together by Seth Greshenson, Cassandra Hart, Constant Lindsay, who's a friend of mine, and Nicholas Papa George. And they looked at measures for students in North Carolina, and they identified, yes, role modeling matters. They also identified it has an impact on test scores, although that's not the only thing. It also said that students who had a Black teacher were more likely to decide to enroll into college to pursue better grades in school. But there's something interesting, and this leads to the conversation about the school to prison pipeline. There are other studies that have identified that more often a student is sent to the principal's office or suspended or sent home in out of school time suspension, the more likely he or she will find his or herself in touch with the criminal justice system through the juvenile justice system early. Well, they found that black teachers on average are less likely to refer students to the principal or suspension than white teachers. And so that could be another factor. Now, when you put all of this together, there are people who can walk away with this with several takeaways. One could say, well, you're basically saying that white teachers don't matter. Well, none of the scholars that I've worked with are the two scholars or the several 
who I've referenced would say that. They're saying all things held equal, there are benefits of having a black teacher, in this case, a black male teacher in front of students. So that's part one. Number two, does it mean that white teachers have no impact on students? We know that's not the case. A number of black Rhodes scholars, those who have Rotary scholarships, those who have won national merit scholarships, have praised their white teachers for preparing them for school. Someone could walk away and say, well, we should just basically create all black schools with all black teachers and administrators, and therefore we can save time. Well, we also overlook the fact that white students, Hispanic students, Asian students, multicultural students, all students need and can benefit from having a black teacher. So this is an article about four black men. It's part of a broader conversation about the role of men in education, role of black men in particular. It's also a question about the role of mentorship, scholarship, and what does that really mean for students? This debate will go on for a while, but those are at least a couple of studies that have identified some relationship, and we'll be interested in hearing your thoughts. I love this story. I love programs like this. I love Sharif's program. I think these are really important. And the fact that we're having these conversations about what's missing, who's missing from the teacher pipeline, and drilling down not only in terms of race, but also gender, is incredible to me. And for as like ruffled as my feathers sometimes get about, about the dialogue, I'm glad that we are at a point in society where we are finally having these conversations. And what matters to me, Gerard, too, is that you're pointing to data. You're pointing to emerging evidence. I don't even think it's emerging any, anymore. I think we have a lot of pretty darned high quality studies that show it does matter. It makes a difference for some black children when they have a black teacher and hey, maybe especially a male teacher. I'll tell you that my kindergarten son, he's in a Montessori school. And for the first time, I've got kids that have been in school. One of them is almost 13 years old now. For the first time, we have a black male teacher and he is teaching my five-year-old son. And I was thrilled on a number of levels because, but mainly it was the, he's a great teacher. My kid loves him and all of that stuff, but mainly the policy wonk in me understanding that this is not a profession that black men usually go into. I was like, wow, this to me feels like progress. It's good for my school, but I'm like more, more by my nose, like really good for society. This is really, and as you said, and white children, my son would consider himself Hispanic. All of my children would tell you they are proudly Hispanic, white Hispanic, I suppose. He just, it, he loves this guy and he, it says a lot to me. I really appreciate this story and I'm glad that we are able to talk about this topic. Of course, we talk about so many topics on the learning curve. Gerard, it's that time. We've been yammering away. It's time to bring in our guest. <laughs> and we're really lucky this, well, we're lucky every week. But with us, we are going to have coming right up Dr. Neil Ferguson. He is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a Senior Faculty Fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. I think it's going to be a real fascinating conversation, Gerard. Learning Curve listeners, we are so lucky to have with us today Dr. Neil Ferguson. He is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and a Senior Faculty Fellow of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. He is the author of 16 books, including The Pity of War, The House of Rothschild, Empire, Civilization, and Kissinger, The Idealist. 
which won the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Prize. He is an award-winning filmmaker too, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series, The Ascent of Money. His 2018 book, The Square and the Tower, was a New York Times bestseller and also adapted for television by PBS as Neil Ferguson's Networld. In 2020, he joined Bloomberg Opinion as a columnist. In addition, he is the founder and managing director of Green Mantle LLC, a New York-based advisory firm, a co-founder of UALA, a Latin American financial technology company, and a trustee of the New York Historical Society, the London-based Center for Policy Studies, and the newly founded University of Austin. His latest book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, was published last year by Penguin and was shortlisted for the Lionel Gelber Prize. Dr. Neil Ferguson, welcome to The Learning Curve. We're so happy to have you today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ah, oh, thank you. Okay, well, this is timely, your appearance on our show, because I would like to start with asking you about the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning British monarch. Talk to us about the highlights of how through Magna Carta in 1215, modern constitutionalism, the glorious revolution, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, how has the monarchy, Queen Elizabeth, how have they powerfully shaped the modern world's understanding of government and the rule of law? Something I think that is not being discussed right now in the current moment as we mourn the Queen's passing. Well, first of all, I should say that I haven't previously discussed this in public. I was asked many times after the announcement of the Queen's death to comment, and I found I couldn't. I was lost for words. And so it's only now that the period of mourning has passed that I feel able to say anything at all about it. The impact on me personally was much greater than I could have anticipated because she, in her 70-year reign, connected four generations of my family and in a complex way made sense of our lives. I think that's the thing that's hard to convey to an American audience the degree to which the Queen personified a continuity in British history that transcended all politics or, for that matter, religious division. The second thing I'll say is that you've expressed your question in a wonderfully Whiggish way, as though there is some great continuity that leads from Magna Carta to the end of the Second Elizabethan Age in 2022. And I'm not sure as an historian, I can let that pass because there's just an awful lot of contingency and disruption in the course of British history. You mentioned the Glorious Revolution, but you skipped over the revolution that led to the decapitation of Charles I and a period of Republican government, the Commonwealth in England, as well as a great deal of conflict between England and Scotland, as well as Ireland. Um, yes. So what I would say to anyone trying to think about British history in the round is that it's been a, a succession of near misses and contradictions. And the Queen's achievement was to reconcile so many of these contradictions, to reconcile in the case of my family that curious tension that has always existed between Scotland and England, making a great deal of her relationship with Scotland and even having the extraordinary shrewdness to die in Scotland. I know that sounds 
a little cynical, but it's in fact just the kind of thing the Queen thought about. She also, of course, personified the end of empire. And as we watch the disgraceful and undignified end of Russian empire play out in Ukraine and elsewhere, it's worth reflecting on how much more smoothly the end of empire was for Britain and the Queen played an enormous part in that. So when we think about British history, let's remember part of her achievement was to paper over very many cracks and make sense of a history that in, in fact is quite convoluted and could easily have gone in a number of completely different directions. All of that is not to underplay the importance of, for example, the legacy of limited government, constitutional monarchy, the rule of law, in particular, the English common law. All of these things are tremendously important. And in many ways, they're in the DNA of the United States. But let's not pretend it was a kind of Whig version of history in which everything was for the best in the best of all possible Englands. That's just not what it's like. Mm. No, thank you for that. Point well taken. I'm curious, and I've heard it expressed that <laughs> through American public radio, of course, I've heard it expressed by some in the UK that they feel a difference between their mourning the queen is a woman and the things that in some sense she represented, but not the loss of a monarch necessarily. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, the difference between the queen, the woman, the person who was the monarch and the establishment of the monarchy itself. Well, you can hear any amount of nonsense on NPR these days. <laughs> of course, what's really striking is the extent to which British society has been united in a sense of grief and at the same time in, I think, a deep admiration for the institution of the monarchy. This is a bleak time for those who fantasize about another Republican experiment in Britain. Ain't going to happen. And that's because mm -hmm. people simultaneously mourn the passing of a remarkable woman, extraordinary individual. But they also are paying their respect to an institution that can indeed trace its history back more than a millennium. And I think that's extraordinarily important. The sense, which I think has been ubiquitous in the British Isles, of respect for that continuity is enormously, enormously important. And it, it guarantees, I think, a kind of political stability in Britain that the rest of the world can only envy. It's much harder to achieve this kind of political stability in a republic where everything is politicized, where the head of state is elected. And you see that in the United States today, where the very legitimacy of the office of president is under constant attack because it is part, indeed it's central to the political process. One breathes a sigh of relief in Britain because so much is taken out of the political arena by the monarchy. And we've effectively had in Britain 10 days without politics, starting again pretty much as we speak, and it's not going to be pretty. But it is, I think, attractive that a part of the fabric of the country's life is really a, beyond the realm of politics. I'm fascinated by that. Thank you for that answer, because I was personally reflecting on 9-11, which the date of which just passed, the date of that great tragedy. I was reflecting on that day that that is the last time I personally remember that Americans came together 
united and had a certain period of time where it seemed before, of course, the political division with invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, it seemed that we had come together in a way that, in fact, we hadn't even at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Right. I'd like to ask you, so you mentioned Empire, and you've, in fact, written a book called Empire. As you've written there, no discussion about Britain's positive and negative legacy would be complete without talking about its contributions to commerce, industry, trade markets, and banking that have not just shaped Britain, but have shaped the global economy. We have a lot of educators that listen to the show. Can you summarize for our listeners what students should know about how this small island in the North Atlantic became the largest territorial empire we've ever known? It's an extraordinary story, and one can't really do British history after 1600 without the empire being a part of the story. I think it's become very difficult to talk about this and indeed to write about this because of the politicization of the teaching and writing of history. It's become very hard to say there were benefits as well as costs to British imperialism because there's an ideological position on the left that says empire is always and everywhere entirely evil to consider any benefits of empire is itself an unacceptable moral lapse. Now that makes historical judgment impossible because ultimately almost all history is the history of empires. It's not actually the history of nation states. Most of what we call history consists of the quite well-preserved records of various imperial entities. And this is true wherever you look in the world. It's true of China. It's true of the Near East. It's true of much of the history of, of the Americas and of Africa. So if you throw out the possibility of a reasoned discussion about empire, you make history, in fact, impossible as a discipline. Now, my view is that this is absurd. It's reminiscent of that moment in Monty Python's Life of Brian, when John Cleese, as the leader of the People's mm -hmm. Liberation Front of Judea, asks what he thinks is a rhetorical question, what did the Romans ever do for us? To which somebody answers, well, the aqueducts, apart from the aqueducts, well, the roads, apart from the roads, <laughs> well, it's quite safe in the streets, apart from public safety and so on. There's a kind of Monty Python quality to this insistence that everything about empire is bad, and nobody can say anything good. I think if you read my book, Empire, you see the absurdity of this quite quickly because so much of the modern world is a legacy of the British Empire, including the United States. The United States wouldn't exist if Britain hadn't colonized systematically uh, the eastern seaboard of North America, as well, of course, as the Caribbean and many other places we wouldn't probably be having a conversation like this in the English language that could be understood by people all over the world if it hadn't been for British imperial expansion. If you ask the counterfactual, what's the world like if the British take a collective decision after 1600 to stay at home and not go anywhere, that world is very hard indeed to imagine because it would be so profoundly different. And the claim that it would be a better world flies in the face of the evidence that when the British expanded overseas, they brought with them a great many rather useful institutions, like the idea of the rule of law based on private property rights, or the idea of 
some elements of representation in the structure of government. The British had the Industrial Revolution first. Nobody can deny that. You can't pretend it happened in China, much less in Africa. If the British had just sat at home saying, we'll do the Industrial Revolution here, everybody else can stick to agriculture, would the world's economy be where it is today? Obviously not. So this whole debate is a sort of ludicrous one. And I think the sooner it's put aside and we get back to studying the costs and benefits of empire, the better for historical scholarship. It's amazing the number of ludicrous debates that are going on in education in the United States right now. I can only speak for the place in which I sit. I'd like to ask you about language because you touch upon you know, the English language being the language in which we communicate with so many people for whom English is not a first language. And it's not just our language, it's also, it's English literature, it's British literature that has really come to be recognized globally, prevailing storytellers of modern civilization, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Jane Austen, my personal favorite. Think in a little bit about how literature and literary creativity has informed this global influence that you've told us about. Well, it's anglobalization that happens after around 1600 as emigrants from Britain settle in all kinds of different parts of the world, bringing with them their extraordinarily easy language. English is an easy language. Anyone who's tried to learn Chinese will confirm this. And it's, as my 10-year-old son was observing, it's got very few rules compared with Latin. So we had this curiously flexible language when we set off in our boats, and that helps explain that English spread beyond even the areas of formal British settlement. Now, I don't want to make the claim that there's something better about English literature compared with, say, Russian literature or French literature, or for that matter, classical Chinese literature. That would, I think, be a wrong claim. I probably have been as much influenced by Tolstoy as by any British writer. But I do think that as the sphere of English-speaking peoples grew, it became possible to think about and study literature of all different cultures and civilizations in a British way. And this, I think, is what often gets missed, that we study Russian or French literature rather in the ways that Oxford and Cambridge dons pioneered the study of English literature, particularly in the 20th century. Ask yourself, who is the most influential writer of modern times? The answer to that question is J.R.R. Tolkien, without a doubt, whose books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings particularly, have sold in astounding numbers and, and inspired movies and television series the language of Tolkien is so ubiquitous that I was just in Ukraine and I noticed that the Ukrainian soldiers refer to the Russians as the orcs. So Tolkien is all around. Tolkien was himself, in addition to being a wonderful writer of English, a lover of other languages. He was deeply enamored of the philology of ancient European languages. He was a scholar of old Germanic and Norse languages. And Tolkien would despise a world that was monoglot and read only English. But Tolkien personifies 
the British contribution in that he, I think, helped to promote the notion of literature as something that one simultaneously enjoyed, but could also study. I'd like you to talk about your most recent book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. And in it, you detail a global history of disaster, the flu pandemic, Black Death, the Asian flu. And part of your argument is that despite scientific, medical, technological innovations, we're becoming so increasingly bureaucratic and our systems so complex that we're actually getting worse at handling these catastrophes. Now, just a couple of days ago, President Joe Biden declared the end of the pandemic, and some have pushed back against that. I am personally quite happy to hear those words. We've been waiting for it, but, but I think most could say that globally it wasn't handled well. Can you tell us about the lessons from your book that we should keep in mind? as we hopefully leave this age of COVID-19 behind us and wait for the next catastrophe. It's hard to talk about a pandemic being over. And I can understand why some people, including people in the White House, as far as I can gather, felt uncomfortable when President Biden said the other day that the pandemic was over. It's clearly not over. It's still one of the top five causes of death in the United States. There are more variants coming down the, the pike. It's like asking back in the 19th or 20th century, when would influenza be over? Influenza isn't over, but it ceased to be such a killer as it was in 1918-19. And it now is something that we get a routine flu shot for without worrying about it too much. And COVID will get there gradually. I suspect it's not done with us yet. And it would surprise me if there weren't another very contagious and virulent variant at some future date. The lesson of history is that these kinds of infectious disease are quite hard to get rid of once they show up. The bubonic plague, when it hit Europe in the mid-14th century, devastated societies right across the continent and through the British Isles. But it didn't just go away after the worst decade, that was the 1340s. It kept on coming back uh, for more right into the 17th century. And indeed, bubonic plague was still a concern in parts of the world in the 19th century. It's still out there, though we now have pretty good medical remedies for it, as long as we don't come up against an antibiotic-resistant version. History is, to a very large extent, one disaster after another. Plagues are the most lethal. The Black Death probably killed about a third of the people living in the world at the time. COVID, by comparison, is a rounding error. The percentage of the population is two orders of magnitude less that has been killed. But there are other disasters too. Wars kill a lot of people. Look at the mid-20th century. Look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. And then there are the various things we call natural disasters. And the book, Doom, makes a very simple argument, which I think was quite original, and that is that the distinction between natural and man-made disasters is a false dichotomy. And just as Amartya Sen pointed out that famines are not really natural disasters, but the result of institutional failures of markets or of governments. So I think all disasters, even something that seems natural, like a pandemic, have some political character, which determines the scale of the mortality. 
there were parts of the world that had almost no excess mortality in the last two years, Taiwan, for example. There were parts that had even worse excess mortality than the US, many Latin American countries. It's not like the virus was different in these different places. It was broadly speaking the same virus, but the public health response in Taiwan was just far better than the public health response in any American country and indeed in any European country. The argument of the book is that we have to be looking for the politics of catastrophe, whatever it is that we're dealing with. And we have to recognize that we're bad at dealing with disasters and we ought to be much better given the scientific knowledge that we've accumulated, especially in the last two centuries. What are the economic lessons from the politics of catastrophe? Like even just speaking to the current moment, what mistakes should we be learning from to better prepare ourselves? There was a tendency in 2020 and even more in 2021 to use a playbook for the pandemic that in fact originated with a quite different kind of disaster, namely the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And so when it was clear that economies were going to be very hard hit by the spread of the virus and even harder hit by measures like lockdowns, politicians, not only in Washington, but in most developed countries, responded by throwing a lot of money at households and businesses and paying for it by borrowing, issuing government debt, which central banks bought, in effect, printing money. Now, this had been the response to the financial crisis, and many economists had concluded that the response had not been large enough. So in 2020 and 2021, the advice was, go even larger, and what could possibly go wrong? Of course, what went wrong, and it was not hard to predict in early 2021, was that continuing to pour kerosene on the barbecue, even with vaccines available, and the danger receding became much less dangerous, the pandemic in 2021, you ended up with an inflation problem. The amazing thing to me is so few economists, you could count them on the fingers of one hand, saw this. The overwhelming majority had bought into some version of the theory that said that you could do any amount of deficit finance, money printing, and demand management without an inflationary risk. From a historian's point of view, it was just obvious that in 2021, a huge policy error was being made by both the fiscal and monetary authorities. And now here we are, we are back to an inflation problem as bad as anything we've seen since Paul Volcker was at the Federal Reserve. And it often feels to me as if we're rerunning the 1970s, but at a slightly faster clip. At any event, I think there were obvious and avoidable mistakes made in 2021 that are going to be very hard to overcome because once you've let the inflation genie out of the bottle, it's pretty hard to get the genie back in. Yes. As somebody who studies education policy, it feels like that pendulum swings hard in one direction and then even harder in the other without uh, much of a look at what we should have learned in the past. Well, education policy is a very important issue with respect to COVID because a disease that disproportionately attacked the elderly, that was obvious from very early on, became the pretext or basis for a radical disruption of the education of the young who were far less at risk. This was most disastrous in a place like California, where public schools essentially shut down for more than a year, 
but worldwide there was a huge amount of damage done to the education and I would say broadly speaking the well-being of younger people. If one asks the question from a simple cost-benefit point of view, did the benefit in public health terms exceed the cost in broader societal terms, I must say I'm less and less convinced that it did because the benefit in public health terms was not that great. The lockdowns didn't work terribly well in preventing spread of the virus. And the disruptions, I think, will have lingering costs for people who were in school or in college when the pandemic struck. And we still haven't really worked out just how large those costs are going to be. Oh, I think you're right. I think there are already there are early indicators that they're going to be very large, especially for those who started off with the least access. Yeah. Before we go, I need to ask you, parent to parent, <laughs> and we've had the great pleasure of having your wife on the learning curve as well. You are a person who studies some dark parts of history. Your most recent book is, in fact, entitled Doom, as I mentioned. It sounds to me as though you you see some bright side in the study of such things. What is it that you and your wife share with your own children so that they have the knowledge, the wisdom that you can impart, but also the resilience to live happy and successful lives? Well, I have five children, and they range in age from 28 down to four. I have always believed that the first and most important duty of a parent is to model decent behavior. And the second most important duty is to get your kids to read and to read avidly. And so you open a door by raising readers that leads to all available human knowledge and then you should say to your kids, go get it. We do not believe in sheltering our children from life's harsh realities. I sat down our 10-year-old last night and we watched some BBC footage of the Queen's funeral and talked about its significance. I just got back from Ukraine where I was 10 days ago and I spent some time discussing with Thomas, who's a bright 10-year-old, what I learned there about the war. I'd visited the scene of war crimes in Butcher, and we talked a bit about that. My youngest is just about to turn five, and it would be quite inappropriate to talk to him about war crimes. In any case, he wouldn't be terribly interested because he's currently laser-focused on something called number blocks. Most education in the English-speaking world is quite inferior when it comes to mathematical education. I've thought this for many years. Number blocks is a solution to this problem. It's a brilliant BBC invention that makes mathematics highly attractive to small children because it personalizes or anthropomorphizes the numbers. Campbell is immersed in mathematics at the moment and scarcely talks about anything else other than addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and square roots, which are a recent discovery. So I think the final piece of advice I'll offer is once you model decent behavior and got them reading, remember you're not in the cloning business and you must let your children be themselves. I was discussing earlier today with Joshua Katz, the sad fate of a mutual friend who had a very domineering father 
and who scarcely outlived his father and more or less fell apart after his father died. And that was because his father had tried far too much to make his son a clone. But our children aren't clones, and you must encourage them to find their own way. That's perhaps the third most important thing a parent can do. Encourage them to find their own way. And this I take from my father's playbook. Just make sure that whatever it is they have a passion for, they strive to do to the best of their ability. And love them. I have to say I have a 12-year-old daughter who is now beginning to remind both of her parents that she is not a clone of us. And it's a wonderful thing to see. Love them as my mother's. My mother's recurrent advice to my wife, Ayan, is just love them. Yeah. Who would contradict? Who would contradict? Hard not to do, even when they are. (laughs) I think that's the easy bit myself. (laughs) It is the easiest bit, but perhaps much easier than modeling decent behavior all of the time as much as we shall try. (laughs) Dr. Ferguson, would you be willing to read us a passage from one of your books? I got a passage. The Neapolitan artist Salvatore Rosa painted perhaps the most moving of all memento mori, entitled simply Lumana Fragilita, Human Frailty. It was inspired by an outbreak of bubonic plague that had struck his native Naples in 1655, claiming the life of his infant son Rosalvo, as well as carrying off Salvatore's brother, his sister, her husband and five of their children. Grinning hideously, a winged skeleton reaches out of the darkness behind Rosa's mistress, Lucrezia, to claim their son, even as he makes his first attempt to write. The mood of the heartbroken artist is immortally summed up in the eight Latin words the baby, guided by the skeletal figure, has inscribed on the canvas. Conceptio culpa, dasci pena, labo vita, necesse mori. Conception is sin, birth is pain, life is toil, death is inevitable. I remember being thunderstruck when, on my first visit to the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, I read those words. Here was the human condition stripped down to its bleak essentials. By all accounts, Rosa was a light-hearted man who also wrote and acted in satirical plays and masks. At around the time of his son's death, however, he wrote to a friend, This time, heaven has struck me in such a way that shows me that all human remedies are useless, and the least pain I feel is when I tell you that I weep as I write. He himself died of dropsy at the age of 58. Dr. Neil Ferguson, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to spend with us today. It's been my pleasure. In the tweet of the week, Gerard, we're just going to keep it on teachers. Theme of the day, right, in terms of our front matter and exit matter here. And this is from Education Week. Districts spend up to a third of their payroll on pensions. What that means for budgets. Not a new story. We know that districts are spending a ton of money on teacher pensions. We know that that breaks budgets in many places and that a lot of times school districts that seem to have tons and tons of money coming at them all the time are crying foul that they don't have enough money because of the high cost of contributing to pensions, very generous health care contributions, et cetera, et cetera. 
interesting to me. I, I would encourage everybody to go see this Education Week report. But one of the things I always like to think about when it comes to teacher pensions and school district budgets is simply put how transparent or not transparent they are. Because I think that everybody should know, not saying that teachers don't need pensions and great health care and all of the things they do, but I think we should know how much of a district's budget that accounts for and districts should post that really transparently for parents to see without having to wade through school board meeting materials, Excel sheets, and other things. And don't forget to tune in next week because we are going to be speaking with Saul Khan, the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, which, by the way, I have to say my daughter loves, and Amy McGrath. She is the chief operating officer of ASU Prep and deputy vice president of ASU Educational Outreach. Gerard, it was lovely to be with you this week, and we'll be back together again next week. Until then, my friend, you take good care and brush up on your riddles, okay? I'm going to come back with another one. I will do. I will do it. Take care. All right, sounds good. Bye.